G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. What's going on? How are you doing today? Uh, good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you. I just thought I'd mix it up there. For okay, the fair enough. We ought to mix it up a bit. A while. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to be with you today, and I'm excited to be with you today to discuss today's topic for the podcast, which is about the stress signature. We've called today's episode Discerning Your Stress Signature. So, Dad, do you want to just give us a bit of a brief rundown today? What are we going to be talking about? Okay, now the idea of a stress signature is that we all react somewhat differently to stress and we'll have our own characteristic patterns of responding to stress. So it's not one size fits all. We're going to have different kind of symptoms, even different reactions, different symptoms. Now the more we understand our personalised stress signature, like what reactions we get when we're, say, mildly distressed than if it goes on when we're more moderately distressed or when we're severely distressed, the more we can calibrate that, the more we can maybe intervene early and know where we're at in terms of how much stress is upon us. Well, I think there's a real element to which today's episode is going to be a practical episode in that sense because it's going to help us find our own recipe for what exactly that looks like when we are stressed because it's the case where it's a little bit different for everyone, isn't it? Yes, it is. And when you mentioned about it being a practical kind of theme, well, it partly follows on from recently giving a talk to Geelong Young Professionals and the idea was coming up with seven tips for mental health. And so this was one of the main tips that I thought that often gets under-recognised, the notion of awareness awareness of our stress levels, practically picking it up early so we can intervene early. So it's partly bringing it up in that context in a talk about mental health tips. This is right up there as one of the main tips I would give people. And it's something as well that relates to a previous episode of the podcast that we've done a little bit in terms of the banishing burnout episode. And so you may like to go back and listen to that episode if you gained something from today's episode. But it was good to have a bit of a broader chat back then about burnout more in general and some of the theory behind burnout, some of the themes behind burnout. But what I'm looking forward to getting into with you today is, as we say, some of the more practical ideas around how do we actually manage with this stuff? What can we actually do if we start to notice our stress building up? We start to notice in a situation that may lead to burnout. What can we actually do before we get there? And what can we do that's particularly suited to us as well and our individual way of doing things? Yeah, so part of it is normalising the fact that all of us at times are going to feel somewhat stressed. And all of us, if we have any ambition or take on any challenge or find ourselves in untoward circumstances, all of us are likely to have times when we're feeling a little bit overwhelmed by stress where it builds up. Now, the thing is, if we can recognise that our stress reactions are partly a normal way that our mind and body might respond to when the demands on us have increased to a certain point or where we're challenged to a certain kind of point, then rather than having to pathologise our reactions and thinking, oh, look, it's all in terms of, say, anxiety or depression or something that, in a sense, shouldn't be happening, we can be thinking, no, wait a minute, this is my mind and body giving me feedback that there's something out of balance here. Like, what's happening in my world at the moment and how equipped I feel to deal with this or what's happening with me internally, there's some kind of challenge going on. Either there are too many demands or the circumstances that I'm in is not a good fit for me or there's some other adjustment or challenge I'm going through that I'm finding difficult. If we can recognise that our reactions to that are partly helpful signals 
guiding us to do something about the situation, to maybe respond differently in some way, then they make sense. They're useful. They're helpful in some ways. But it's worth us discerning our own stress signature. So it's not just in terms of standard anxiety or depressive symptoms. There are other reactions that we might have, such as losing a little bit of a sense of meaning in our everyday work that might give us a clue or losing a little bit of joy in some of the things that we're doing. It might not be a full-on depressive symptom, but it might be a hint. Oh, okay, watch out that I might be a little bit more stressed than I'd realised. Well, you alluded to it a little bit there, but I think it'd be good to really break it down in terms of what actually is a stress signature. Because I know for myself, for example, in different situations, I'm potentially going to respond to stress differently. It's not as if I have a default mode that I go into whenever I am stressed. There can be certain stressful situations that are slightly different from each other that potentially bring out different reactions to stress. So what actually is the stress signature? Okay, well, I generally think of a stress signature as a broad blueprint for our own pattern of escalating stress reactions. So even though, as you say, we might react somewhat differently in one situation to another, there will tend to be broadly characteristic patterns of how we tend to react when we're mildly stressed, then how we tend to react more intensely when we're moderately stressed, and then if that keeps on going, like say for further weeks or our stress gets more intense, then it might escalate to more advanced stress reactions, which might include more significant anxiety and depressive symptoms. But earlier on, some of our earliest signs of stress might not be particularly anxiety or depressive symptoms. It might be feeling a little more impatient or a little less joy in certain situations or or maybe noticing that our intrusive thoughts are becoming a little bit more frequent or we're slightly more distractible, but not to the point of being a very significant symptom, for example. So it's getting the notion of our own pattern of escalating stress and how it affects our mind and body. And it's going to basically affect us in five different areas, which we'll elaborate on more soon, but at a physical level, including even aches and pains, at an emotional level, at a mental or cognitive level, like what happens with our thoughts, relationally or socially, and then spiritually, which also relates to our sense of meaning or purpose in life. These are the five broad areas where we're going to tend to get reactions And some people will get stronger reactions in one area rather than another, but we'll tend to have broadly characteristic patterns for ourselves. Well, I'm looking forward to going a little bit deeper into each of those elements of a stress signature with you in terms of the different domains that stress appears. But one thing that strikes me about a stress signature, and I think it's worth noting here as well, is that with a stress signature, we're not necessarily trying to get rid of stress completely are we? So we spoke a bit about it on the last episode that we did, the Banishing Burnout episode, but the idea of a stress signature is not to completely be so on top of things that you're able to completely be proactive right through to the point of always recognising when stress is coming and, and being able to mitigate for that. That's not quite practical. That's not really feasible to do it in that way. But there's a really interesting story, isn't there, about the idea of where the stress signature came from. And I think that story in terms of where it was first developed can point a little bit to the utility of the stress signature in terms of when it's really worth looking at the stress signature and going, hold on, what's this going to lead to a little way down the line? And then recognising the times when a little bit of stress is normal and it's worth 
recognising that but maybe putting up with it a little bit more as well? Yes. So, look, I think there are a couple of broad things here coming up from what you've raised. The first thing is having stress reactions is normal. We don't have to pathologise it. And that's where even if we look at the field of positive psychology and how we can enhance our well-being, it's still worth recognising how our body reacts when we're feeling taxed. And so we'll look at that side of things. But the interesting thing historically is you're getting at is part of how certainly I first became aware of the idea of a stress signature It was from work in the field of schizophrenia, so in terms of severe mental illness. And it goes back to the 90s when people were thinking, how can we further reduce hospitalisations for schizophrenia and help the functioning of people who are suffering from severe mental illness? And the idea was, well, maybe if we can intervene early, because it was often found that when people were hospitalised for schizophrenia for the first time, if people looked at their history, there were signs of disability before then. There were signs of people becoming a little bit more withdrawn, maybe dropping out of the course that they were doing, increased conflict with other people, uh, further problems with alcohol or drugs. If you traced it back, there are other signs. And earlier on, there are even more subtle signs. So the idea was maybe there are indications even for a year or two before people develop debilitating mental illness of when... They are going through further difficulty. And this was related to what was called the stress diathesis model. And that basically means people's stress would reach a certain point where it would reach a certain threshold to trigger, for example, psychotic symptoms. And the idea was, well, what if we intervened earlier? And so the whole idea of early intervention in psychosis came back to identifying people's relapse signature, is what they called it. So if they noticed that someone had been hospitalised, they'd look back at what were the earlier signs of someone becoming unwell or some sign of disability or not functioning so well. What happened after months and months when that was getting worse? And what happened, say, just before they were hospitalised? And so if people, for example, suffered from delusions or hallucinations, that was often quite late in the piece. Earlier on, as I say, they might have become more socially withdrawn or not functioning so well at school or work, something like that. So it's looking at the more subtle indicators. Now, what that also meant is if people had been hospitalised and then they'd got some level of stability, maybe including medication, maybe including other kind of interventions as well, and then they left hospital re-engaging with their everyday life, the idea is what if that person was forearmed and more aware of what kind of signs for them were worth watching out for. And so that's when they introduced the idea of people who've been hospitalised for psychosis, identifying what were the earlier signs that they noticed when they became unwell. Moderate signs, what did that advance to? Maybe talking with family members about some of that as well. Now, the more people recognise that, then later on, if they found that they were starting to get distracted and losing sleep and feeling more irritable, they might not yet have had such problems with hallucinations. But if they responded early to those more subtle signs and again had good contact with mental health professionals and they were reviewing how they were going, they found that this would reduce relapses. This would improve people's functioning. So the idea was taking from that field. If that's relevant for people with significant mental illness, maybe it's relevant for all of us. 
let's think in terms of all of us, what are the more subtle signs of when we're starting to feel a little bit out of sorts? What if that goes further? And what if that progresses to the point which would often then lead to a significant depression or anxiety disorder? And what I like about this kind of approach is it does normalise it. We're not thinking in terms of signs of stress, stress reactions as being pathology. It all means that there's something going wrong with our mind and body. Hey, maybe we're meant to have some of these reactions like aches and pains, distracting thoughts, feeling a little bit more irritable, maybe not getting so much joy. Maybe these are signs to us that something's a bit out of balance. Maybe there's something in our world that's not going so well. It's something that we're worried about that needs to be attended to. Maybe, like burnout, there are excessive demands on us, outstripping our resources. Now, the more aware we are of our reactions and where we're at in terms of those stresses, the earlier we can respond. Then, in other words, people might be looking to address a problem before it becomes a significant depression or major repeated panic attacks or something like that. It's by intervening earlier then we can get things back in a balance. And in other words, maybe we're meant to somewhat react like this. Maybe it's like warning lights on a car. And they tell us, hey, look, we're nearly out of petrol or otherwise, you know, the brake lights are coming on in front of us. Watch out for some risk of danger. Signs and signals are there to sometimes warn us of some threat or danger. Hey, maybe our stress reactions are the same. Rather than just pathology, maybe helpful signals that we might attend to. Well, one thing that really strikes me about that is it really underlines to me the utility of learning about the stress signature, particularly at the moment. Because as you were describing that, one thing that comes to my mind is in many ways, it feels that we could substitute the word psychosis for crisis. And I think one thing that's really important there is, for example, I know at the psychology practice at the moment, we're getting a lot of calls from people who are in more of a crisis situation. And for example, they're not able to get in for a few weeks. So one thing that really stands out to me there is if we're able to recognise some of this stuff, as you say, before we get to the stage of depression, before we get to the stage of crisis, at a really practical level, that's going to mean that we're, for example, not going to have to wait six weeks for an appointment at a time where we're at a more acute level of depression or anxiety. If we can recognise this stuff early and get a bit on top of it, or at least put some things in place to alleviate some of our stress in a way that's appropriate for us as our unique individual that we are, it seems to me that that's where this really has its utility, particularly at the moment when psychology appointments and support in a crisis situation is potentially hard to come by. Yes, certainly picking things up early and then recognising that extra stresses at times are are normal. This reminds me from what you're saying about the last year of COVID. And what I find in different workplaces is we discuss with people, you were there too at the Geelong Young Professionals meeting, and we asked people, is it a common topic of conversation about mental health these days in the workplace? And many people are saying, Yes, it's just normal for people to say, you know, I've felt really stressed in this way or that way or these are some of the ways I've been reacting. Over the last year, we also found with clients we were seeing in our practice, it's like everybody had an extra 30 to 40% level of stress over and above what they had before. 
So if people had panic attacks, they were more severe. If people had depression, it was intensified. If people had OCD kind of reactions, like compulsive reactions, they tended to be more frequent or more intense. In other words, it was normal for people to have escalated kind of symptoms. But that also means that people in everyday life and work situations, many people were finding it was more difficult to concentrate or they're a bit more irritable or there was some impact on their sleep or what commonly people described is some increase in alcohol use, for example. But it's recognising that these things are indicators of something getting a little bit more out of balance, so it's a cue to act on that by using things like we talked about in the last podcast about increasing our exercise levels or using arousal reduction techniques or drawing more on social supports. We'll draw on these other practical strategies earlier if we recognise that things are getting a little out of balance for us. Well, it's interesting referencing workplaces there because to me, as we talk about this and as I'm just thinking, the stress signature seems like such a good way to normalise some of these discussions without having to get into some of the nitty gritty in terms of the negativity of it. So without having to say to someone, look, I understand, you know, you may be feeling depressed. I understand that you may be exhibiting signs of your stress signature for you know major stress for more than moderate stress but if for example we're able to have these conversations earlier on normalize it to the point of saying look everyone goes through this sort of stuff and it's just a matter of finding what's applicable for you finding what's most appropriate for you it seems to me that that's such a good entry point into some of these conversations Yes, it helps take some of the shame out of it, if you like, because we've talked before on this podcast as well that where people often get into difficulty with reactions like anxiety or depression is it's not just the anxiety or depression that's the biggest problem. It's often people feeling panicky about being anxious or ashamed of being depressed or helpless about reacting angrily. So part of the idea is taking some of the shame out of these reactions, kind of normalising the fact that we are going to show different signs of distress in our minds and bodies in different ways. But if we don't judge that in itself, but just look at how we'll respond, then we're more inclined to act in constructive ways to address the situation rather than get caught in negativity or think, oh, am I going mad or there's just something wrong with my mind? It helps us be more productive in addressing it. Well, let's maybe have a bit of a look now at some of the reactions and you mentioned some of the domains of stress before in terms of whether they're physical, emotional, spiritual, mental or relational symptoms. But let's, for example, maybe start looking at the physical symptoms because these are ones that we can all connect with. We all might relate to feelings of, for example, uneasiness in the belly or or not being able to sleep at times. But what are some of the more common signals in the physical domain that someone's experiencing stress? Okay, well, often I think some of the earlier signs at a physical level are people feeling some level of tightness, some level of tension or tightness, which again will tend to hold in different parts of our body. Some people, many people, will be a bit of tightness in the stomach, or it could be across the shoulders or in the hands, or a number of people it'll be tightness in the jaw, which if that gets further, it might become teeth clenching. And if it becomes further again, it might be teeth grinding at night, for example. So each of these symptoms can escalate in intensity, if you like, as well. But that's one of them. Then it could be aches and pains, and it might be a mild headache initially, but also later on that might become more significant migraines. It could be tiredness, 
that again at a more advanced level might be a real listlessness, sleep difficulties are quite common. And initially it might be just a little longer to get back to sleep. If it's more advanced for some people, it might be waking up in the middle of the night and waking up with worries on one's mind. Often the tummy is affected, like certainly some kind of digestive reactions or tightness in the tummy or stomach upsets would be one example. People can feel a little bit more restlessness coming across as, say, foot tapping, if you like. Other things, actually something I could relate to at times, if I'm feeling more nervous or stressed, I can start to feel a little bit more hot. You can notice your heart rate go up a little bit at certain times. So certainly aches, pains, tightness, tiredness, and things affecting our sleep are some of the most common ones. And I wonder if there's a way to discern what's more of a pure stress reaction, if that makes sense. Because, for example, if we're not sleeping, we may not be sleeping as well, well, there may be some appetite change that comes with that. There may be some, obviously, fatigue and tension that comes with the sleeping in itself. So is it more the case that we may get a collection of symptoms that all come at one time that are related to each other in some ways or is it more likely that we're likely to have one main way that we deal with stress? Look I think it is across a range of ways and so I think for example if someone just had sleep disruptions but not so many other signs of stress that we're going to go through more examples shortly as well then maybe there's something else more physical going on or if people's immune system is affected like certainly that can be a sign of of stress getting colds more frequently but by the same token if people are getting more frequent illness it can be worth checking that out physically as well when it's stress related it tends to include a range of reactions also the emotional the cognitive the relational and so on Well, let's get into some of those now. How about we look at the emotional stress reactions? How do they show up? Okay, now often, I often find the first sign for many men in particular is irritability. So some frustration and irritability. But also it can be sadness, a lower mood. It can be outright anxiety that goes with worry as well. So irritability is often a sensitive one. And it might early on be like a lower mood, a little bit like a malaise. But if that goes further, then it might become a really low mood to the point where people might not be feeling much joy at all. But it also can be mood swings to a degree. So people might only be feeling low for maybe half an hour or a couple of hours and then afterwards feel fully fine. But that might become a little bit more intense over time. It also can relate to feeling discouraged more and not experiencing much joy. It might be the absence of humour and joy. So people notice that they're not seeing the humour in things or smiling as much and reacting in that way. And how about the mental symptoms for stress? One of the main things that people tend to find is an increase in intrusive thoughts. So people be a little bit more distracted, a little bit more problems with concentration, but also more negative or self-critical thoughts. Well, it could be self-critical thoughts. It also could be a little bit more irritability and feeling critical about other people, more critical thoughts about others. It can also be a little bit more confusion maybe, maybe feeling a little bit more empty or dull. Maybe it's even not coming up with such creative ideas 
as usual. But what I notice in particular is at first disruptions to concentration might be subtle, but later on it might reach the point, for example, where someone's finding it hard to watch a movie all the way through. And when people become quite severely depressed, then maybe people find it hard even to concentrate on newspaper headlines almost. So again, each of these tend to progress, but certainly difficulties with concentration tend to come in intrusive thoughts and increased negativity about oneself and others. And before we get into the spiritual and relational, one thing that interests me, having a look down this list here, is that it seems to me that there's an aspect to which the physical, emotional and mental symptoms for stress are a little bit more individual in terms of their things that we might experience on an individual level but then the relational and the spiritual could potentially be reactions to those individual reactions if that makes sense for example if we look at the relational feeling a little bit more isolated feeling a little bit more resentful a little bit more lonely quite often those feelings can come from for example, experiencing stress for a prolonged period of time, feeling even just subconsciously that almost need to withdraw from people. You know, you think, oh, I'm, I'm no good to be around at the moment. I might just basically go spend a bit more time by myself and get my head around some of this sort of stuff. So is it the case that some of the relational and spiritual symptoms for stress almost relate to our reaction for the first three domains? Yes, look, I think that's an astute observation, the relational side, because sometimes what we describe to people who are feeling overwhelmed by their individual symptoms, for example, they're feeling very anxious, very low in mood, and they're really keeping away from other people. Or they might have very significant trauma symptoms with intrusive thoughts, they're trying to block out those thoughts, they're feeling numbed, and they're keeping away from other people. Part of that can be like the animal reaction of recuperation. If an animal's been wounded what it will tend to do is go away from the herd and lick its wounds. Now, sometimes that's what people will do. If they feel overwhelmed or traumatised, they might be somewhat withdrawn from other people. And at times, part of that could be a reaction where they're, in a sense, going away to lick their wounds, look to regroup and come back. Now, to some extent, that can be a worthwhile thing to reduce social demands, for example, while people are looking to recuperate but sometimes it becomes something more significant or even serious in itself. For example, people are becoming disconnected from other people. And then I think, again, like you were suggesting earlier, there could be the individual reactions of feeling overwhelmed, but then that can come to lead to the person being disconnected from others, including their social supports. And that's when it can become more serious. Because when people are struggling, it really makes a difference to look to engage with your social supports. Still, some trusted others. Look to connect with them. Let some people know that you're struggling. You know, catch up with your GP even. Let others in to some extent who are trusted to offer some support because otherwise the more mild relational reactions, if you like, like feeling a little bit more distant, a bit more withdrawn, maybe hard to feel as connected or close to other people, it might lead further to isolation and really clamming up. And that's when it becomes more of a problem if people are trying to keep their difficulties to themselves being overwhelmed, if people are getting caught more and more in negative thoughts, physical and emotional reactions, that can be when mental health problems can compound. So I think, like you were suggesting earlier on, watching out for that, how those individual reactions can then compound how we connect with others 
because otherwise we might be unwittingly missing out on some of the social supports that can make such a difference. Well, that's really interesting hearing you explain that. And it seems to me that from the licking the wounds idea, there's a real safety that can come in an overwhelmed situation from withdrawing at times and going away to figuratively lick your wounds for a little while. But as you say, I think in that idea of having a safe place at that time, we can almost get stuck in that. We can feel so drawn to it because it is a safe place at a time when we are feeling overwhelmed. And that's where it can almost take a little bit of courage, I think, in some ways to bring yourself outside of that situation and get back out there and continue to try and keep progressing forward even when you are feeling some of this stuff. Yes, and so I suppose that's where it comes back to discerning our reactions. In other words, showing good judgment about our reactions, being self-aware. If we're taking a little bit of time out from demands or withdrawing to some extent, and if we find we're regrouping physically and emotionally and improving mentally as well, then that's working for us. But if we're withdrawing from other people and our negative thoughts are compounding, we're feeling just as bad, uh, physically we still have certain difficult reactions, then withdrawing from others would be a warning sign. That's part of how all these reactions go together somewhat. It's looking at the overall pattern. And we're looking for improvement in these areas rather than deterioration. It's the direction that things are going in. If it's continuing to deteriorate, the earlier we act, including drawing on supports, the better. Whereas if we're taking some kind of action and we're finding that these symptoms are easing, even if we're still experiencing a lot of distress, but if they're easing, that's a good sign and a sign that maybe we keep on doing what we're doing, such as exercise, drawing on supports, engaging in meditation or some other arousal reduction technique, a lot of it is looking at the direction that things are going in. And I wonder if people have a dominant domain, for lack of a better term, in terms of, for example, are people likely to experience more physical symptoms and they lead to, for example, emotional, mental, relational and spiritual symptoms? Or uh, I guess I ask because as I'm looking at this sort of stuff, for example, for me, when I'm feeling a little bit more overwhelmed, I think the spiritual side of things is where it gets affected a little bit. You think, oh, geez, you know, I've bitten off a bit more than I can chew here. I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed at work or whatever. And, you know, but I've voluntarily taken on this responsibility. You know, what have I signed myself up for? And, you know, maybe am I not up to it in this situation? And potentially that leads to, for example, physical, emotional, mental and relational symptoms. But I know for me, it really seems to be that spiritual, when I let these things get too far, that is most affected in some ways. So is it the case then where... One domain that we may, for example, feel a little bit more acutely is likely then to affect the others. For example, is someone, yeah, as I say, more likely to have emotional symptoms, more likely to have physical symptoms, more likely to have spiritual symptoms, or is it a bit more of a mixed bag in terms of what you can get and when? I think it's a bit of both, but I think like you're suggesting, some people do tend to have some reactions more than others. And so, for example, a number of people will have reactions that we call somatizing kind of reactions, so somatic distress, it's much more the physical. I'm someone who tends to have more the cognitive kind of reaction, so in other words, more intrusive thoughts or negative thoughts coming up, more frequent thoughts, more disruptive thoughts. 
But when you're mentioning the spiritual side, we ought to mention some of the specific spiritual kind of characteristics, if you like, or signs. It can be maybe losing a sense of direction a bit or not so much sense of meaning in what you're doing, a bit of apathy, maybe being a bit unforgiving of oneself, maybe of others, or feeling of emptiness in some ways. These are the broader spiritual reactions, and they would be something to do with our connection, if you like, with the world around us. So where we look at the relational symptoms, if you like, or signs, it might be where we're becoming a little bit disconnected from others. The spiritual reactions are a little bit like being disconnected from our deeper selves in the world, if you like. Now, again, a number of people aren't going to have so much of that spiritual reaction, if you like, if they don't have, dare I say, more spiritual thoughts in the first place or look for purpose and meaning in their lives in some ways. For some people, that's just not so much what they focus on and so they might not notice that there's say a bit of magic missing in their life in that way or or less sense of purpose and meaning because they might not expect to have so much of that in the first place but they might notice more a sense of irritability or maybe low mood or someone else that will be more the social withdrawal so I think that we do tend to have more prominent tendencies in one or two or three of these areas, if you like, more than others. But I do think that most of us, when we're feeling more significantly distressed, will have reactions in most of those areas. And so then what can we do if we're noticing ourselves starting to progress down the path of stress? In terms of we're starting to notice some of our more mild symptoms of stress come in, potentially we're maybe trying a couple of things, there's stuff going on at work, there's stuff going on with friends and family, we're not necessarily able to reduce our demands in some ways, so now we're experiencing things a little bit more moderately. What can we do once we start to notice our stress becoming a little bit more intense? Okay, I think one of the main things is when we see it going in that direction, the idea is to look to intervene sooner rather than later And I think, first of all, go for the strategies that are more tried and true. Now, for this, people might have some of their own recipe for what works for them when they're feeling more stressed. But at very least, we'd emphasise, well, some of the tips that we've highlighted on this podcast in the past, including the last episode on exercise, increasing your exercise levels. That's something that's likely to help even your brain chemistry. It'll help the serotonin levels, dopamine levels. So in terms of mood, motivation, things like that, exercise is probably the number one mental health tip along with the number one physical health tip. Then something to help reduce our arousal level. It really helps if people have a regular practice like meditation or yoga or repeated relaxation or mindfulness practice. And I think in 10 years' time, 90% of us, 80-90% of us are going to have some regular discipline like that because there'll be so much evidence that comes through of the benefit to our physical and mental health. We'll realise that having some regular discipline is one of the most reliable ways of maintaining our mental health. So that's something that we can do as well. Another thing is drawing on our social supports. We know nearly always that's going to be something that helps to a degree. And I would say also the more significant the distress, then maybe the more important it is to at least talk with your GP or some health professional, and certainly if it gets more severe, looking to see a mental health professional to help address that Because under those circumstances, often people have felt that things have been deteriorating to a degree and they haven't found their ways of addressing that sooner themselves. 
So, look, I might even say for people with milder levels of distress, our podcast episode on a recipe of resources could be worthwhile because that talks about online information that people can access when especially at milder levels of distress, people can often read about and apply certain strategies that might help. When it gets to more severe levels of stress, that's when I think it's worthwhile people certainly talking with their GP, but often following up with some kind of mental health assistance, seeing a professional perhaps as being part of that. And so one thing that interests me about that there is then how do we discern when a little bit of stress is good? How do we discern when it's worth putting up with a little bit of stress? Because I can think, for example, you know, I've been doing my podcast, Dad, for the last little while, and uh, I'll tell you what, there's been some stressful moments when deadlines are approaching and you don't have exactly everything as you want it to be. You can feel very stressed at that time. Any creative project, fair exactly, enough. Yeah. yeah. But then, for example, when things get out, and, you know, they get out just fine and it sort of goes okay, that level of stress almost completely subsides. Whereas if I was in those stressful times, I almost would have just thought, you know what, actually I need to reduce my demands. Maybe if I don't do this today or if I don't get my podcast out on time this week, then you know I won't feel as stressed. But for me in the long run, I think it's better to be a little bit stressed in that situation because overall it leads to more satisfaction. So how do we discern when a little bit of stress is good? Yes, that, that, that's a good theme there because if we're going to have any ambition or strive or aim for a sense of purpose and meaning, so engaging creative or worthwhile acts, just like you're suggesting, we're going to be signing up for a certain level of stress. And it reminds me actually of a quote from Catherine Devaney, the author who has writing workshops, which I found very helpful, this writing workshop, but I was struck by something she said. When someone says, oh, look, you must love writing, she said, I hate writing, I love having written. (laughs) I think that's a great way of putting it, like the sense of productivity or creativity from producing something, wonderful. But how about people who are putting on plays or maybe writing a symphony? Imagine if someone took on a task like that, as if that could be something easy. And so I think that's the thing, if people are striving for any kind of significant achievement, and probably the greater the striving, to some extent, the more there'll be a level of stress along the way. Yet some of the things most worth doing are going to induce some of that stress. So I think part of it is about some kind of balance, and part of the balance is recognising that moderate stress can be good for us. When we engage in a moderate level of stress, as in we take on some challenges or demands which tax us to a degree... But we have a sense of self-efficacy, meaning we've got some sense of what we're doing, so we've got some sense of influence or control or we're choosing it or we can partly plan in when we spend time on these tasks. So we've got some level of influence or control. That could be very satisfying. And when people are engaging in deliberate acts, which might be somewhat stressful, like you're mentioning, producing your podcast, then that can give us a sense of achievement and self-efficacy Over and above that, it can lead to neuroplasticity because a moderate level of stressful challenge means that we're adapting. We're having to learn or do something new or change or deal with some kind of challenge in some way. That leads to neuroplasticity, which is a good thing. In the long run, that's good for our well-being. It's good for our learning. It's good for our growth. But if we're in a situation which we haven't chosen, 
we're feeling somewhat helpless. We're not in a position to cut back on our demands in some way or we're feeling pressures from someone else who's maybe not taking our interests into account or something like that. If you're in a helpless situation and feel more significant stress, that's different from if we're choosing something which is a challenge. But then when we're looking at this kind of issue, you're partly looking at the difference of what might be called eustress, E-U stress, compared to distress. So in other words, if we have a certain level of moderate arousal where we might be quite focused, we might have a bit of intensity in our thoughts and all the rest of it, if we're deliberately engaging in some kind of creative act or whatever, then that level of moderate arousal can be satisfying. For example, also people competing in a grand final, they're going to be experiencing a significant level of arousal. An artist or an elite sports person, they're going to be stressful circumstances, but that's eustress. Distress is the negative appraisal of stress. And that's often when we're feeling a degree of helplessness, not such direction, that side of things. So all of these things are relative. It's partly how we perceive a situation. But one of the things is allowing some level of arousal, some level of challenge as not just being normal, but sometimes very worthwhile and productive. And that's where I think as well, the more that we can get clear on, for example, what our mission, vision and values are, we can look at, for example, what are the things that I want to spend my stress on, for lack of a better term? What are the things that will be satisfying to me in the long run, even if they are a little bit more stressful in the shorter term, particularly if they're to do with that you stress idea? I like that idea that you just mentioned there. And the other thing that comes to mind there is... In many ways, it's kind of the opposite of what we've been talking about today. But I was actually listening to an interview with Matthew McConaughey recently. And he was talking about how all throughout his essentially adolescence, right through adulthood, he's kept these diaries. And in these diaries, he essentially realised when he was a bit younger, I want to note down things about my life in a diary. But he was finding that he was mainly writing in those diaries when he was feeling negative. And so he would look back through those diaries and they were a little bit more of a negative collection of his thoughts. And so he thought, I'm going to have to be a little bit more proactive about this. And so he made an effort to, for example, when he was feeling really good in himself, when things were going really well, he'd note down some of his observations about how he was feeling, how he was responding in those times. And I wonder if, to a degree, it's almost as if Matthew McConaughey created a flourish signature, which is almost like the opposite of a stress signature. And so I wonder if one thing that could help there is working out the opposite of everything that we've been doing today, working out when things are going really well. What are some of the symptoms that show up for us when things are going moderately well? What are some things that show up for us? And then if we're going through a time when we're feeling a little bit more indifferent, it's almost like we can reverse engineer some of this stuff. We can go back through our flourish signature and go, oh, you know what, I'm just, I'm going to fake it till I make it in some ways. And I'm just for the sake of it going to do these three or four activities and see where it gets me. And it seems from what we've spoken about, you know, on the podcast in a whole range of episodes, that idea of going through the activity, you can get so much benefit from it, even if you are almost faking it till you make it. Yes. Well, what comes to my mind when you're talking about that side of things like a flourish signature, so to speak, it reminds me of a core question that comes up in positive psychology, which is, what makes life worthwhile? And actually, to take it a little bit further, I like the way that 
psychologist Robert Lay talks about this issue because he says that positive psychology or an optimistic view of life is not inconsistent with a tragic view of life. He says a tragic view of life starts like this. I'm going to die, you're going to die, everyone's going to die. That's pretty tragic and they're tragic things that happen. There are traumas that people can go through. There's abuse that people can have experienced. There are all sorts of things that can be tragic. And yet, there are things that make life worthwhile. So it comes back to that core kind of issue. Whether we're struggling or whether things are going quite well for us, it's also being aware, discerning what are the things that make life worthwhile. And they'll tend to be things that lead us to have a sense of flow, meaning time passes and we're so engaged in what we're doing that we get satisfaction from it. When you were saying about making your podcast earlier, your Individuate podcast, I imagine sometimes what makes life worthwhile, helping create in that way, is also something that creates stress and you'll have more of your stress signature operating at the same time. So this comes back to a balance of what we're on about, recognising that sometimes when we do have an intention, a sense of purpose and meaning, that can make a difference. But also, I can think of some simpler activities. I know that for me, that generally everyday life and week by week will seem more worthwhile if I'm engaging in physical exercise, going for a jog a couple of times a week plus a game of tennis and maybe a kayak, for example, or taking time for reading, sometimes a book, not just newspapers, taking some spontaneous time to catch up with friends and having some social things lined up. For example, it's having an idea of those things that part of our, if you like, building blocks of life that we know tend to keep our joy levels up, so to speak, or keep us engaged or keep us interested and and keep us having fun. Oh, it's an interesting one, Dad, because as you were describing that there, I must admit, if there was anything that comes to mind for me, it's probably watching sport and playing sport. You know, anyone who knows me knows I'm an absolutely mad sports fan, but... Unfortunately, in many ways, at the same time, it's probably the other side of the coin too in terms of, you know, I'm a Newcastle United fan at the moment. We're not doing too well. So there's a fair bit that's contributing to my stress signature at the moment that way too. Yeah, they can, they can go together and, hey, I'm really looking forward to the first live sport, the first football game that we see this weekend at that great ground, the MCG. So bring that on. Absolutely, yeah. It would be great to get back and see a Geelong game. I must admit, I've already been to three games, Dad. I'm a little bit of a glutton for it at the moment after not being able to go for so long. But thanks so much for talking to me about all this today, Dad. It's been great to go back over some of this stuff, but in a practical sense, it'll be good to be able to go put this stuff into practice and and just be a lot more mindful of this sort of stuff too because obviously... We've been talking about a stress signature today, so it's good to be mindful of of what our stress symptoms are, but also that little bit at the end too, in terms of the flip side of things. It's good to recognise when we're approaching periods of being a little bit more stressed, but I think it's also worth recognising some of the things that are going to help lift us out of that period too. Yeah, basically, it's one of those areas where self-awareness really helps us address challenges, and awareness of our stress signature is, as you say, I think one of the most practical things we can do. We'll put up all of the resources for today's episode. We've got a few on the stress signature, I must admit, on the website. I was having a look the other day, Dad. So we'll pop all of those up on the podcast page for today at chrismackey.com.au slash podcast. Thanks so much again, Dad. I look forward to the next one. Look forward to it, Rowan.